Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camerina. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining me. So, a few weeks ago, we did a couple of different episodes talking in particular about CDS and CJNG, the two dominant cartels in Mexico at the moment. We started off, we talked about their leadership. We talked a bit about their history. We did a little bit of a compare and contrast in their economic and operational styles. And we even did a little bit of speculating about what the future may hold, especially in light of recent events, including, for example, the um, arrest and capture of Ovidio Guzman. During those episodes, I mentioned a couple of times the increasing connections between the Mexican cartels, CDS in particular, but the increasing connection between the cartels and counterparts in Europe and maybe even the Middle East. And I thought today we would kind of conclude this discussion about CDS and CJNG, this compare and contrast, by looking at their role in Europe and the Middle East and also do a little bit of a forward thinking with respect to that. And again, why are we doing this? Right? The idea here is that the more information we have, the more we understand CDS, CJNG, other cartels, how they operate, what their aims are, what their future looks like, what their future plans are, the better we can evaluate you know, governmental responses, the better we can talk about and understand the police and the military and their responses to the cartels. We can understand the news in a new and a different way. And just overall, you know, our ability to talk about the cartels, their actions in an intelligent way increases. I just think knowledge is so important. Um, otherwise, there are these nameless, faceless, you know, Sicarios in Mexico battling it out, and, and you know that doesn't really get us anywhere. Instead, you know, these are groups. They are groups headed by real people with real decision-making capabilities, and to understand those decision-making processes is helpful to us. Uh, even just as as observers. So with that, let's talk about CDS and CJNG in Europe in particular. Before we get started, I want to say a couple of things about where the information has come from. So number one, we talked last time, especially when we were talking about the different economic styles, about some reports from the Brookings Institute. They've also done a very good report that comes um, or that discusses this European connection Keep in mind, I said it last time, I'll say it again later, I don't always agree with the conclusions um, or some of the assumptions from these Brookings Institute's reports, and, and it comes from a, a professor, Vanda Felbab-Brown, um, who is a doctor from MIT. So the credentials are, are phenomenal. The information is phenomenal. I just don't always agree with some of it. No, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. There was also a report that came out at the end of last year. It was a joint report from Europol and DEA 
lot of the information that we're going to talk about comes from there. And then some of it just comes from general news reports. There have been some pretty decent articles recently to talk about this. All right, let's talk about Europe and, and kind of an overview. One of the things that's becoming increasingly clear is that Mexican cartels and criminal groups in the European Union and throughout Europe have established ties and are working together to, tra to traffic narcotics, primarily cocaine and methamphetamine, from Latin America to Europe. Okay? Absolutely no question about that. The interaction between the cartels and their counterparts in Europe is increasing. In many ways, the corruption that is kind of inherent in Mexican society is being replicated or trying to be replicated in Europe, where the cartels and their counterparts in Europe are, are taking actions to try to corrupt public and private officials in order to more effectively and efficiently um, traffic their narcotics and then distribute them once they're there. Um, we know CDS is involved in a lot of these because of some arrests that have occurred. There was one in February of 2020 where they, uh, the Italian authorities found um, a trafficking operation and there was a direct link between CDS traffickers in Sinaloa and European-based uh, associates who brought in the drugs and then distributed them. And we'll talk about that process in just a second. Um, illegal production facilities, right? Facilities to produce methamphetamine, to um, produce cocaine, have been found in Europe and found to be being run by Mexican nationals over the last couple of years. And that's occurred in um, the Netherlands, in Spain, in Belgium, and other places. Obviously, one of the big concerns is concerns for, for officials in, in the EU in particular is the idea that the violence, the inter-cartel violence that you see in Mexico could be transferred to Europe, right? So they're obviously concerned about that, taking steps um, to avoid that. And we'll talk about that again in a second. One of the things that's fascinating to me is the idea that in addition to providing the raw materials for cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, synthetic opioids, whatever it may be, Mexican cartels are also providing expertise. And the truth of the matter is Mexican laboratory specialists, cookers, um, have a greater base of knowledge than similar folks in Europe. And as a result, those Mexican laboratory specialists are able to produce higher and more potent yields of the final product, whether it be cocaine or methamphetamine. And this makes their product both more profitable 
and more highly sought after, right? Better product, you you can sell it more easily, and you're going to get a higher profit off of it. Mentioned uh, a minute ago the distribution, and and I want to circle back to you know, how it operates in the United States, and it's almost like a hub and spokes economic model. So drugs will come into the United States and generally go from Mexico to main city hubs, whether that's Phoenix or LA or Denver or Chicago. And then local criminal organizations, gangs, other associates will start trafficking the drugs locally. And so what you haven't seen much is like a wholesale group of you know, CDS nationalists moving up to Chicago to do all the distribution. They leave that more to people on the ground. And they, so they've developed, in, in many cases, um, you know, strong ties to local criminal organizations. Have there been fights and battles and, and deaths as a result of uh, Mexican cartels and Mexican gangs moving into areas? Of course there have. But generally speaking, they haven't tried to move into new areas through violence, but instead through association and economic ties. That model seems to be the model they are using again in Mexico. And so when the cartels are are moving more and more cocaine into Europe, they're using um, ports, they're using certain entry locations for the the drugs and then transporting it through Europe by local um, affiliates, local traffickers, much like they do in the United States. Um, The reports are that Mexican cartels have well-established European operations in a lot of nations, Uh, Netherlands, Belgium, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Germany, France, the UK, Ireland, Serbia, Albania, Romania, Slovakia, um, and then you could throw in Turkey in there as well. When we're talking about cocaine, one of the other things that's really important to know is that cocaine sells in Western Europe for almost twice what it sells for in the United States. So that makes it a really interesting market, right? If you're if you're in Mexico and you see this, you're thinking, okay, twice as much if we can if we can distribute it, you know, successfully. Um, and get it to Mexico for less than that cost, we're we're making an even better profit, right? One of the things, the Brookings Institute in particular talks about this, that's become a little bit surprising is that the cartels are trafficking the coca base rather than the finished product, but they're transporting the base into Europe where it then gets processed into cocaine in places like Netherlands and Belgium and Spain, um, you know, normally you would think that the logistics of trying to move and conceal and then you know, distribute this raw product would be more difficult. So that's an interesting development um, and something that I, I am interested in following a little bit more as we go forward. 
Um, again, one of the very important things in Europe is the idea that Mexican cookers, laboratory workers, are able to produce a higher quality or, let's say, higher potency of cocaine than has ever been on European soil previously. That makes it very sought after, makes it a very lucrative market. Um, outside of a couple of areas, methamphetamine has not been a big issue in Europe previously, though it still is kind of a smaller market compared to, say, the United States. The amount of methamphetamine being produced and consumed in Europe is definitely increasing. Um, at one point, the uh, the market for amphetamines, methamphetamines, and and the like, um, and this was in 2019, was valued at 1.6 billion dollars. So you can imagine that it's a little bit more than that now. Um, wastewater analysis has identified increasing or the increasing presence of methamphetamine residue in places such as the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, Finland, Norway. Uh, so that is definitely increasing. And again, most of that production is being fueled by raw products from Mexico and laboratory specialists creating the fi the final product in Europe and then being distributed by Europeans. Synthetic opioids um, obviously are a, an issue and a concern for officials in the European Union. One of the things that's interesting is in some respects, the the drugs in Western Europe in particular, but let's say Europe, kind of lag behind what happens in the United States. So kind of like the fentanyl crisis hasn't really occurred in Europe yet. As a result, European police and, and other officials are able to look at what's happening in the U.S. and try and you know, anticipate it, maybe take steps to avoid it. Um, most of the opium heroin that comes into Europe is either from Afghanistan or Iran. The Taliban has, in theory, outlawed um, the production of opium and heroin or, and the trafficking and stuff. I say in theory because, of course, it still occurs, and it almost has to occur because their entire economy depends upon it. But that is actually part of the barrier to fentanyl, right? They've got so much coming in, especially, again, from Afghanistan, that fentanyl hasn't become a, a big issue Yet, yet, uh, but European Union officials continually are monitoring this situation, and that DEA um, Europol report talks about the fact that they are very concerned that the same trend could occur that has occurred in the United States, where heroin is largely being displaced by these synthetic opioids. 
One of the things Mexican cartels also have been trying to do is to um, push um, methamphetamines, crystal meth into into the Middle East. Um, And part of the way they're doing that, some of this is is also occurring in Europe, but right now it's more, um, more into the Middle East, is again this idea that the methamphetamine that the Mexicans produce is far more powerful. It's a far superior product. And I think I said earlier that most of the, the heroin and opioids comes from Afghanistan and, and Iran. I meant Afghanistan and Syria, so I apologize. Um, the other thing they say is that the supply moving from Mexico into Europe can then be scaled up and then shipped from Mexico or from Europe into the Middle East with some supply routes that are already well established. So there is a flow of drugs going directly from Mexico to the Middle East. And, and we'll talk about one important connection in just a second, but there's also kind of that secondary route of going through Europe, then into the Middle East and really establishing um, a a depth of use that the Middle East hasn't seen much of. The Sinaloa cartel is also supposed to have some um, pretty important connections to uh, Middle Eastern drug traffickers, particularly within the Hezbollah movement in Lebanon. Okay. Um, and it's also known that there are joint operations between CDS and Hezbollah in uh, areas of South America, including Brazil and Argentina and Paraguay. Um, the concern, obviously, for officials is that a combination of um, or a partnership between Hezbollah and the uh, Sinaloa cartel or CJNG or both could bring large volumes of narcotics, particularly cocaine and methamphetamines and then fentanyl into Middle East. And they can then kind of work around the um, the facilities that are in place now. So again, a lot of this comes from Syria. If you can bring it in from other places that displaces kind of the Assad regime, what happens there, right? So where you have these totalitarian governments that rely heavily on drug trafficking, drug production, drug distribution, if there's another route to those drugs, how does that affect the governments, the regimes, and the stability of the region. And I think that has to be a serious concern. And, of course, there's the concern that if you're dealing with Hezbollah or other organizations in the Middle East, the connection between terrorists and narcotics traffickers could get far blurrier, right? That's number one. And number two, just where does the money go? If the money right now is flowing to the Assad regime, if there is a new alliance or if the alliance between, let's say, Hezbollah and CDS grows, 
where does that money flow? That again is a significant concern on more of a global counterterrorism um, mindset than just narcotics trafficking. All right. Conclusions. The Brookings Institute, and I'm going to read just a, um, a couple of paragraphs from the report, because I think it, that it does it more justice to read it than it is to, um, to try and paraphrase it. But the report says the odds are high that European law enforcement agencies will be able to maintain such incapacitation and deterrence capacities. Nor do the Mexican cartels in Europe have the firepower or manpower to bring to the old continent the violence they routinely unleash in Mexico. But the arrival of Colombian sicarios to Spain at least suggests the speculative possibility that under some circumstances, the Mexican cartels could consider importing their hitmen to Europe to fight it with European criminal groups with greater history and easier resort to firearms and violence. Conversely, the Mexican cartels could attempt to mobilize these local proxies for violent takeovers of retail markets in Europe. However, this has not been the modus operandi for Mexican DTOs outside of Latin America. Fearing U.S. law enforcement, the Mexican cartels have not tried to violently reshape U.S. drug markets or create monopolistic supply distribution relations in the United States like they have done across Latin America in recent years. In the United States, the Mexican cartels operate peacefully, albeit destructively. Specific U.S. retail markets, such as Chicago and Baltimore, remain highly violent for a wide set of reasons separate from the presence of Mexican cartels. The way criminal violence would more likely intensify in Europe is as a result of European criminal groups fighting amongst each other over lucrative and expanding retail markets in cocaine, methane, and potentially synthetic opioid markets. So that's their conclusion and really looking at it more from a European mindset, right? How destructive is the presence of Mexican cartels going to be to Europe? And, uh, you know, what's the potential for significant increases in crime associated with the Mexican presence or the cartel presence in Europe? I think the other factor that we should consider is how this informs our thoughts about the future of CDS and CGANG. And again, we, you know, recently we've heard congressmen talking about let's go to war with the cartels. And I've asked the question over and over if, if you went into Mexico today, and you got rid of everybody associated with CDS and CGNG, which, of course, you could never do. Would that stop the flow of drugs into the United States? And if it would, how long would it? Right? And I think the answer to that is pretty clear, at least in my mind. It wouldn't stop it completely because there are other cartels, there are other drug dealers, there are other traffickers. There are other locations outside of Mexico. And even then, you know, you get rid of everybody from CDS, you go back to the United States. What's to say they don't come back up again? 
You know, it's the dandelion in the yard. They're always going to come up and tell you, take away the soil for them to grow, which is the demand. But again, what I think is important about this discussion about Europe and the Middle East is that demand isn't just in the United States. It's throughout the world. And I'll bet money there are CDS affiliates in Australia, in other parts of Asia, parts of Africa, other areas of South America that we haven't mentioned. And so when you're talking about getting rid of the cartels, when we in America in particular and and our politicians and the officials at the DEA and the officials at the Department of Justice talk about getting rid of the cartels, it is a much more complicated issue. It's a much broader, it's a world-based problem that requires a deeper and a broader set of analyses than I think we are generally seeing. Doesn't mean it's not happening in different places. But don't most of us think a lot of what we're hearing about now at least from the outside. And again, I'm not in DEA. I'm not in DOJ. But a lot of it appears to be the finger in the dike mentality. And because of our nature of politics, having real long-term solutions is difficult, if not impossible. And the longer time goes, the more established the cartels become worldwide, the more extensive the problem is because they become more deeply rooted in other places. Right? And so then deterrence Um, and enforcement really becomes whack-a-mole. Okay. I hope that made sense. And, and, And part of the reason I'm thinking about it is just there were a couple of congressional hearings in the last week or 10 days that I thought just, at least from what I saw, again, fully acknowledging I'm not there 24 hours a day, didn't hear everything, don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But so much of what I heard just seemed to be political rhetoric with a very simple-minded approach. And I don't think that's going to work. Ever. Okay. Thank you for listening to that. Kind of a shorter episode today, but that um, probably pleases some people. Um the next couple of weeks, we're going to go back and we're going to talk about a couple of things relating to the Camarena case, but in kind of different ways. One of the things we're going to talk about in particular is Dr. Umberto Alvarez Machine. And I have a couple of other things coming up. We also have a few interviews coming up. So uh, stay tuned. Thank you for listening today. 
hope uh, you come back. Don't forget my book, Someone Had to Die, if you're interested in the, the camera in a case. And also the things we do over on YouTube, including kind of news updates, two or three of those a week. So feel free to check that out if you will. And have a good week. Thanks, everyone.